you know, Jeff Goldblum got uh, his name trending on Twitter there a few days ago. Everyone was freaking out because he said, yeah, I'd still work with him. Like there's no, as far as Jeff Goldblum and many of Alan's contributors have, uh, are concerned, like there's not enough evidence to convict the guy. So they're, they're not going to like burn that bridge. But I'm like, are you going to ask every person who's ever been in a Woody Allen movie whether or not they'd still work with him? Chances are a lot of them would still say yes. And like, that's problematic, but it's still like, it's kind of like empty content. Well, whether, whether or not you agree with Woody Allen or not, it's the fact, what bothers me more is the fact that we're not very tolerant of people who don't hold our own views. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, Jeff Goldblum, what doesn't mind working Woody Allen? That doesn't mean I have to hate or like Jeff Goldblum or take a side. Yeah. I just clearly, I know where he stands. And, but I'm not going to personally hate on him for disagreeing with me. Let's talk to the 15th uh, Woody Allen contributor this week to (laughs) see what they think about that. I know. I I like, I can dislike Woody Allen as a person, but still find genuine value in his films. Yeah. And that's stuff like that. That gets back to the whole question of like art versus the artist. And, you know, especially when it comes to a movie that takes like, uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of people to make, and you know how much of it is Woody Allen's contribution, and how much is the crew, and um, yeah, I mean, personally, I haven't liked a Woody Allen movie probably since Midnight in Paris. Midnight in Paris, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and like he's he's been insistent upon like you know crafting stories that are very much kind of like a, a plea for help. Oh, where yeah. he you know he has like this older male character who falls in love with a younger female character and it's very self-reflective yes yeah not not that we should yeah not that we should accept it or anything but uh people are gonna be fucked up and weird (laughs) well how's that how's that for putting a button on it people are gonna be fucked up and weird (laughs) well on that very uplifting note uh, (laughs) we'll cut some of that out let's start the show Welcome to episode 61 of the Extra Buttery Podcast, a free-flowing conversation between two guys who love movies and TV. This time on the show, we're going to be touching on the new Robert Eggers movie, The Lighthouse, the new Martin Scorsese movie, The Irishman, and we'll also be talking about Damon Lindelof's HBO show, Watchmen. But joining me from Vancouver is my co-host, Jason Chen. What's up? Yeah, let's just jump right into The Lighthouse. Daddy! Neptune strike ye dead, Winslow! All right, have it your way. And with that very atmospheric uh, sound cue that you just got, you know what sort of movie we're dealing with here. We've been kind of dancing around uh, talking about The Lighthouse for the past couple of months because it was at Cannes in May, and it got a pretty warm reception there. I don't, I can't remember if it won any awards from the jury, but uh, it then moved on to hit up a lot of the the major festivals this fall. It was here at uh, TIFF. All the screenings were sold out here. You saw it at uh, VIF. I finally saw it uh, about a week or two ago uh, here in Toronto at uh, one of the, the Cineplex theaters here. And I remember you telling me, back when you saw it at VIF, that it was like as close to a five-star experience for you as you could get, but you just had to take a half star off. I can't remember exactly why, but (laughs) that was was very interesting to me because I expected you to not like it quite as much as I did, Uh um, given that it's a horror movie and I know you're not a huge fan of the genre, but... um, Having seen it now, I I I think I'm on that exact like four and a half star level with you. Like it it was just a an absolute um, like mind warp of a movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just uh, especially the last half. Yeah, the last half. I mean, it is. I think I, I there's a review up now on uh, kinetoscope.ca uh, for those who want go visit a full take of full take of uh, of my thoughts on the movie. But um, it's kind of like this movie kind of like grabs you by the front of your uh, your shirt and just like drags you down into a uh, like underwater cavern with you or something like that. It's uh, it's just a a fully immersive experience with like 
weather and dread and insanity. Um, <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I, I totally loved it. Um, but the story is, uh, the story zooms us back to the 1890s when uh, two lighthouse keepers arrive for a four-week stint on this remote island where a, uh, it's off the coast of New, of New England. There's a kind of lone lighthouse, a couple of buildings there. And we've got Willem Dafoe as a guy named uh, Thomas Wake. He's like an experienced lighthouse keeper. And then we have Robert Pattinson as Ephraim Winslow, who's like the young trainee lighthouse keeper. And immediately Wake sets about uh, assigning Winslow with all of like the grunt work to do around the lighthouse. And they seem to get along all right, but it's clear that there's some tension between them. And things just kind of like deteriorate from there. The weather beats on them. Uh, they start to get, squabble over minor stuff and it just builds and builds and builds until the whole thing falls yeah, apart. Very much a cabin fever, a cabin lighthouse movie, if you will. <laughs> a cabin lighthouse, yeah. Yeah. Um, why did you take a half star off? I thought it would be in a five star film for you because you usually go a bit higher than me, but I'm curious why you didn't give it the full five. I'm not entirely sure. I don't, that there's nothing in particular I didn't like about it. Um, right. Maybe it's that... I just like built my built up my expectations a little bit too high and it didn't quite it didn't quite rise to those expectations. I mean, that can happen sometimes when you're really looking forward to something because not every part of the movie is interesting. Like, I'll give you that. Oh, yeah. Like there's certain parts where, you know, there's no, no like immediate threat to the characters and they're just kind of going about their tasks. I mean, that's uh, yeah. Or just like it's kind of like uh uh, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, or like, okay, we get the point, just freaking move on, man. Yeah, yeah. Because the first half hour really builds and builds and builds, and it starts to, it just when it gets to the point where you're tired of the building, it, it goes like full 180 into like the deepest, darkest uh, parts of our brain. Yeah. So there is the build up to that. I There were some certain parts I took marks off because I thought the pacing was off, or um, like I said, it, it it just didn't feel like every scene in the movie was very necessary. Mm. I did like everything else about it. I love the fact that um, all of a sudden he introduced all these like mythological creatures and and ideas and like sort of like a, a Lovecraftian thing. I know it's overused, but it's very Lovecraftian. Oh, yeah. I mean, anything to do with like um, kind of stormy weather and kind of tentacled monsters and uh, insanity and stuff having like that. Having sex with mermaids, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, is, are there, is there a lot of, like, having sex with mermaids in Lovecraft? I don't know. Maybe it's just, you know, it all kind of connects with the, those themes. <laughs> well, like, a lot of, like, sexual tension okay. and okay, yeah. whatnot. Like, kind of like a, um, body horror, how, yes. how Robert Pattinson kind of, like, contorts himself to become like one with this like sea creature or he gets wrapped up in tentacles and whatnot. Yes. Yeah. What did you think of the performance though? Cause I think I appreciate the movie lot, mostly for that. Yeah. Cause like the, this movie has kind of like two big things going for it. It has the, the location and all the, everything that the location is doing to kind of draw you into this situation. Go Nova Scotia. Yeah. Go Canada. Um, but then it, it's it's basically the combination of the location and the performances. This isn't a movie that does like a lot of stuff with jump scares or uh, big set pieces no. or action or any of that. It's it's all kind of like about the place and the two guys who are stuck in it. And you've got um, Willem Dafoe, who's kind of like, you know, he he's got a lot of range as an actor. He I mean, does. He's, uh, he, uh, you watch one of the... Um, those like uh, Vanity Fair videos that were published recently about like uh, his career breakdown. Yep. And you see the sheer number of like different types of roles that he's played. Granted, all, all of them sometimes have a bit of like a creepy edge to them because that's just the way the dude looks. Um, but yeah, you so to see him here as this kind of like salty sea captain who's spouting this uh, archaic dialect of English with uh, lots of like mariner uh, lingo jargon how long have we been on this rock help me to recollect and stuff like that <laughs> um and and then you've got robert pattinson who i mean i still feel like i need to i i'm a one-man robert pattinson pr guy right uh -huh. now because there's still people that i interact with like friends colleagues that uh that only know robert pattinson from maybe twilight and a couple who? of the movies Name that he them. did post twilight name them no just like people i work with or or not i don't think there'd be anybody that you know but uh 
I just have to say, like, yes, the guy from Twilight, but he's actually really good. He's been working really hard on probably movies that a lot of these uh, friends or colleagues of mine haven't seen. But <laughs> Or that, you know, like, did you know that Robert Pattinson actually hated working on Twilight and yeah. knows that you hate Twilight as well? Exactly. <laughs> and, you no, know, and this, like, this movie is kind of a, you know... If, if all you know of his work is Twilight and maybe some of the more Hollywoody stuff that he did after that, if you suddenly expose those people to his performance in The Lighthouse, they're like, oh, okay, he's a serious actor. Like, this this kind of uh, pulls the veil off of that completely. Did you ever read about how he got, like, psyched up to do those scenes with Willem Dafoe? Uh, so one of the first scenes he filmed for that movie was, like, the scene with, like... The- where he was masturbating. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of those scenes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, like, in in order to kind of get to the edge that he wanted to for this character, for Ephraim, he would, like, talk to himself, punch himself, beat himself up. Right. And just to, like, get the anger out of him. And apparently um, working for Eggers isn't, like, the most pleasant thing in the world. And they were, like, spraying him down with, like, huge fire hydrant hoses to, like, uh, simulate the, the storm and the floods and everything. And Robert Pattinson's just, like, he, he's not the type of actor who is willing to do, like, 20 different takes of the same thing. Right. Every take, he wants to do something different. So, he got to the point where, like, he was re- literally on the edge where he didn't know how to react anymore. And he had to really, like, physically beat himself up to find a new range that he could use for this movie, which I found really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, it's it's a pretty risky kind of method to have when you're when you're an actor, like to kind of emotionally and physically abuse yourself to get uh, a different performance out. But (laughs) it's proven to work, though. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it works for the character because he's supposed to be playing a guy who's been kind of beaten up by life, who um, is exposed to some of the most vicious conditions uh, imaginable and is completely deteriorating mentally so uh you know hopefully he doesn't have to like punch himself in the face to play batman too that would be kind of a it wouldn't bode well for his career length or anything but well it would be interesting it would be interesting to see a more rageful batman i know i'm not saying that like he he shouldn't push himself or anything but like the whole the you know physical abuse and, and, and mental anguish and stuff like may, maybe go a little bit of the way there but don't go all the way or something because <laughs> he'll just like you know he'll fall apart don't don't heath ledger it yeah, is what yeah. you're saying or jared leto or whatever wow jared leto's still alive unfortunately so <laughs> yeah no i mean just like stuff like mailing used condoms and dead animals to your coworkers, right stuff which like that. I, I find it is shockingly not not somehow um, uh, an assault. Yeah, um, some sort of like felony. <laughs> I feel like creating an creating an unsafe work environment yeah. is like one of the top ten worst things you could do today. What did you think of the the light of the lighthouse? It was like metaphorically supposed to be like this this thing that Willem Dafoe can sort of gets involved in and wrapped up in, and eventually what kind of turns him crazy. Yeah, I kind of. And maybe that was part of what contributed to me not not going the full five stars on it because right, okay. I kind of want I kind of wanted just a little bit more from that like is it is the is the lantern uh, actually supernatural does it have some sort of otherworldly control over these guys or mm-hmm. is it just all in their head and they're kind of they they're they're completely nuts and they're seeing things in the light that aren't there right and maybe it's because I just you know the movie Annihilation came out recently and the climax of that movie takes place in like a, a wrecked lighthouse and there does seem to be a a thoroughly otherworldly alien presence in that lighthouse but i was kind of like mooshing the two movies together in my head and i i wanted this kind of big showdown between the the lead character and whatever it was in the lighthouse that was right destroying everything yeah the, the light in the lighthouse is supposed to be sort of this this MacGuffin thing and and for annihilation it was more like a like a sci-fi murder mystery that kind of needed yeah. a conclusion um, I didn't feel like the lighthouse really needed one, but it would have been nice if the light made more of an appearance than in just the final minutes of the movie. Yeah. Because they talk about it or they don't even talk about it. They mention it all the time. And Robert Pattinson's character at one point, I think, starts questioning like 
um, what Willem Dafoe sees in the light, what he's doing all the time with the light. Yeah. And yeah, it, it definitely reminds me of Annihilation. But um, at the same time, though, I get why Robert Eggers would choose not to delve too deep into it because it kind of ruins the whole mystery of the film. True. Yeah. Um, the, the idea is supposed to feel like claustrophobic and invaded by this sort of like spirit of the lighthouse thing. And so I'm kind of glad they didn't explain it. But I'm like you, like... If you think back to it, I think the lighthouse is a little light on plot. It drags because it's kind of tough to see two people go crazy and have that be like 99% of the movie. Yeah. But I I thought it was enjoyable. I mean, what are your thoughts about the awards part of this movie, though? Because it is, it's Oscar bait in the sense that it is a very dramatic movie. It is very experimental, but it's also not because it's very low visibility, almost a bit too art house for them. I think people have uh, have pointed out to me in uh, well, actually, no, I think it was it was our our friend uh, Peter recently on the the big joint mm-hmm. episode of uh, the podcast that we did during TIFF. But um, basically, the idea is that the Academy has gone pretty far in terms of trying to diversify itself. And the, the old critique of like, it's just a bunch of old white men is is less applicable now. Um, it's still probably, you know, it, the, the majority is still the majority. But um I would say that we're still a couple of years out from movies like The Lighthouse having any real awards traction because, you know, it's still a horror thriller type of thing. You know, the Academy historically has not really liked movies like that. Um, It is experimental visually. You know, they're shooting it on this 1.19 to 1 aspect ratio film stock. Um, It's all in black and white. And it's really just like two actors in a kind of like chamber piece sort of situation. All of those elements together kind of make it more likely that the movie, you know, there might be a stray supporting actor nomination for Willem Dafoe in that. Uh, maybe a screenplay. Oh, but think, I thought Robert Pattinson was better, actually. Not that it. Not that it's like one or one or the other is better. I think they're kind of on a they're right. on an even okay. keel. I'm just thinking like. Willem Dafoe still hasn't won his Oscar yet, and of the two of them, he'd probably be the more likely to <laughs> right. get a nomination. Again, like we talk about how much the Academy has changed, and what we're st- talking about how like politics has has uh, a role to play, and people being owed awards. Very and, much so. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't disagree that the Oscars have been more inclusive, but at the same time, like you look at all the work that they've quote unquote done, and then they let. A film like the green book win and you're just like well mm. clearly we haven't moved anywhere and it and that's a shame because this like you know i love what robert eggers is doing with with horror and and how he's he's not using the old tricks in the horror movie playbook and he's he's getting so much out of like a historical setting with period accurate details and strong performances and locations that you know, other directors will kind of like throw a bunch of cliches at the screen to try to achieve. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how well Just Mercy will be received when it's released on Christmas. Yeah. Because if that gets a warm, a very warm welcome, like Academy level um, kind of welcome, then I really don't think we've moved anywhere. Yeah. Um, I think we're very much stuck in the mud, just kind of rolling around in it. Sometimes <laughs> progressing, sometimes not. Definitely falling on our faces a lot, though. Speaking of horror, have you watched Science of the Lambs yet? No, I have not. I got my Criterion order. Uh, they had a recent flash sale. You know, any any of you Criterion lovers out there will uh, be with me in... in uh, oh, so you haven't received it yet. No, no, no. I came in the mail, but I I, oh, have, okay. I got six Blu-rays uh, in that order. And then, uh, not to mention, I got another couple of Blu-rays um, from Amazon about, for other movies. So I'm like swimming in, in unwatched Blu-rays right now, and I just have to find the time to pop them all in me too me too i need to get back on the wagon i've fallen off so hard and it's been a while since i've actually yeah. watched like a movie well you you had a, a pretty dense uh, couple of weeks there during vif so i <laughs> yeah I, I needed a break um, it's, it's funny how people are like what do you mean you need a break from movies i'm like no you don't understand was no. the way i watch movies like it it, it takes some mental effort yeah yeah, it's not just something If I wanted I, to turn my brain off, I would watch Aquaman on loop for five times. <laughs> um, speaking of films. Speaking of, Oh, yeah. Okay, I thought you were going for a, good, a better segue. 
no, I was waiting for you to segue. Okay. Um, yeah. So speaking of films, you know, half of what this whole podcast is about, um, we've got another film, and that film is The Irishman. We're going at war with these people. War. Things have gotten out of hand with our friend. You gotta sit down. Everybody says so. No, I'm not sitting down. I can't do it. It's what it is. What it is. I know things. They don't know I know. It's gonna happen. Either way, he's going. Gangster picks. Give them all to me. Not to go too far down the Martin Scorsese versus Marvel thing again, because we did that last episode yeah, screw that. and it never, never ends. But I feel like part of what's kind of keeping that discourse going is because Scorsese's got a new movie out and that is uh, The Irishman. So this movie has been in production for, uh, I, it feels like it, production for this even stretches back to before Scorsese's last theatrical release, Silence. Oh. Yeah, it's um, like his entire life seems like building up to this point. Yeah, and uh, and understandably because, you know, it, it is a movie that kind of, it takes in everything that he would have learned and uh, experienced while making some of his other huge gangster movies like um, Goodfellas, Gangs of New York, and uh, any number of others and kind of synthesizes all the information in those and then adds on this extra element of like the passage of time. And what happens to these guys when they inevitably age? Feels almost autobiographical. In the sense that, like, Scorsese is secretly a gangster? No, in the <laughs> sense that, like, he has filmed gangster films throughout his entire career. Mm. And who but Scorsese could really paint this gangster opus um, that stretches across decades better than him? Yeah, true. I think every director has this, like, opus, this film that I think that his entire life has kind of not aimed towards, but certainly moved toward. Yeah. So for George Lucas, his opus was clearly Star Wars. And and you could argue the, the prequel trilogy is his kind of his opus because that's the one that I think was the Star Wars that he wanted to make. Um, yeah. The original trilogy was like, uh, uh, constrained by all sorts of different production and budget stuff, yeah. Issues, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so that was his opus. Um, and I think this is Scorsese opus, Scorsese's opus, in that he had an unlimited budget to work with actors that he's most known to be working with in the genre that he's most known for, and managed to create. I mean, out of all the directors who could create a gangster opus, like who else but Scorsese? I don't think anyone else could do it. And this doesn't really suit the the tone of of the the observation that you just did. But the thing that popped into my head was that moment from Walk Hard, Dewey Cox story, when Tim Meadows says, "Give him a minute, son. Dewey Cox needs to think about his entire life before he plays." <laughs> but but it's it's a hundred percent true. Like. Uh, he you're you're right like he uh, netflix he partnered with netflix on this one seemingly yes. because silence didn't do too well in the box office you know it was a it was a pretty niche subject matter um about jesuit priests in like 17th century yeah. japan yeah and that was not going to be a seller in the first place anyway. but he needed a huge budget for this because he wanted to be able to take actors that um he that he's always worked with you know longtime collaborators like robert de niro and joe pesci al pacino and show the arc of their lives over multiple decades. And to do that, you need really advanced de-aging technology with, you know, uh, expensive. Yeah, which I've heard is good. I, it's it's all right. I mean, uh, I wouldn't, I, I, I don't think the intention on the part of the filmmakers was to take um, Robert De Niro and Pacino or, or and, um, and Pesci and make them look like the younger selves that we already know from their earlier work. I don't think that would be possible because their faces have just like aged too much for you to get like <laughs> the, you, you're not going to, you're not going to see the Robert De Niro from, you're too old. You're not going to see the Robert De Niro from Taxi Driver or King of Comedy. His face has just changed way too much. So the young version of him in this, when his character is in his forties or even his thirties, um, looks like a de-aged 80 year old Robert De Niro like there's there's no getting around it right right okay. um, but backing up real quick to the actual plot of this thing that we're talking about so this movie is about 
a mob hitman named Frank Sheeran, who's a real guy. Uh, it's based on a, a book that was written about Sheeran called I Heard You Paint Houses, which came out in 2004. And it charts how Frank Sheeran came up through the ranks of the Teamsters Union uh, after a uh, distinguished career in the U.S. Army during World War II. And through the Teamsters, he connected with some of the Italian mafia figures who were connected to the Teamsters, uh, who were running protection rackets and other uh, criminal enterprises, kind of in not to support the Teamsters, but the Teamsters were kind of like important in uh, making things happen. And of course, heading up the Teamsters union at the time, the general president was Jimmy Hoffa. And so this movie sees Frank Sheeran's kind of rise up through uh, kind of two um, different power structures. He gets to a very high position in the Teamsters and becomes a, a union president, one of the locals, and is kind of like a personal bodyguard for Jimmy Hoffa. But then he's also uh, in with all of the uh, Italian mafia, specifically the Buffalino crime family. And that's headed up by uh, Russell Buffalino, who's played by Joe Pesci in this movie. And we kind of follow Sheeran's uh, double rise in these two different worlds uh, that are kind of intertwined until we get to a climactic moment uh, where Jimmy Hoffa disappears. And as many people might remember, technically speaking, Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance slash likely murder has never been solved. Mm -hmm. And that's that's kind of what we have here. We have like De Niro's character starting the movie by reflecting on his life he's speaking to an unknown person we never actually see who he's speaking to it's uh, the, these scenes take place in like a a catholic nursing home and through all these flashbacks that's where we start seeing this de-aging technology where we we watch frank sheeran kind of coming and going through various parts of his life and you know carrying out mob hits but also hanging out with jimmy hoffa and their families getting to know each other and it's uh, you know the scale is just epic does it ever feel like a really long four-hour movie? Actually, no, because I was thinking about other recent, like, three-and-a-half-hour movies that I've seen, uh, like uh, Terrence Malick's new one, A Hidden Life. And whereas in Terrence Malick's thing, you know, for all of the beauty of the shots and how fantastic um, it is on a, like, production level, I did kind of feel the, the, mm -hmm. the time going by in a really um, plotting sort of way. In this... You don't really feel the time pass in the same way. You're, you're just kind of sucked in. There's a lot more like dialogue and uh, drama to follow along with. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of like it picks you up and draws you along. But the weird thing is when I come to actually ranking the movie, because I feel like even though the watching experience mm -hmm. isn't as plotting or lengthy as a hidden life, I still think hidden life is the more beautiful film or the, the movie that's doing more new things in terms of like visuals and um, music and uh, and that kind of thing. Whereas The Irishman, right. it's easier to watch, but there's less innovation in terms of storytelling, you know, where we are still getting right, like a course. very much like a, a very, a long- It's a mob story. A mob story, yeah. And it's, you know, we're not seeing any new kind of dynamics there that we haven't already seen, other than the fact that we see a, the full length of it and watching these guys get old and die. Would a an apt comparison be the Irishman to the Godfather? A little bit, yeah. But then the Godfather had the benefit of being split up into like the three distinct chapters released as individual movies. And they each had their own like right, internal but, arcs in those movies. Well, the Godfather 2 kind of spans quite a quite a wide bit of time. It does, but then you got like you got the the early prequel stuff yeah. with the uh, like the young version of Don Corleone and um then the right. the kind of present day stuff with Michael Corleone. This one's got like maybe four or five different time periods that it's trying to keep track of. All right, I'm excited because I love mob films. Probably crime is probably my favorite genre film. So, I mean, De Niro and Pacino together. Oh yeah. I'm always yeah. game. I even, I think managed to like sit, somehow sit through half of that. That one they did a few years ago. It was like set in Brooklyn or something like that. I can't remember the name. Oh, uh, it was, was like one of their rare was, team yeah, ups. It's like Righteous Kill or something like that. Righteous yeah, Kill. Yeah, I, yeah, I even I made it through that. half of that. So um, anytime those two guys are on the screen, I'm always interested. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'm glad that you said it doesn't feel like a three and a half hour film because my God, films these days are just 
a test of my patience sometimes. <laughs> well, they're like, you know, serialized TV is getting away with telling, uh, doing like 10 hour movies in, in TV show form. So I guess they feel like uh, the uh, they've got the license to to uh, stretch stuff out now. Yeah. And I mean, that's a good segue <laughs> for Watchmen. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but it was not. But I'm glad you saw it that way. <laughs> yeah, that was a good segue um, because Watchmen, if you. I think we're four or five episodes in, and if you watch them in the succession, it would kind of mm. feel a little draggy at times, but in one hour chunks, it's quite an entertaining and interesting show. People who wear masks are driven by trauma. They're obsessed with justice because of some injustice they suffered. Ergo, the mask, it hides the pain. I wear the mask to protect myself. Right. From the paint. I don't know when you plan on getting on the show, but I hope you do soon because we can really talk about it. Um, but anyway, Watchmen, um, this new HBO show developed by Damon Lindelof, famous for Lost and Prometheus and and also famous for being a screenwriter that doesn't know how to write a coherent plot um, <laughs> a screenwriter who doesn't know how to properly end things a screenwriter whose ideas just kind of sprawl in all sorts of directions with no real goal and and again characters who are a lot of times dumb and uninteresting but at the same time the show has been sort of the opposite but we are only four episodes in so anyway you're kind of in like prime uh, prime Lindelof territory now, like those early episodes when his uh, his like the scope of what he wants to do is stretching out in front of you. Yeah. And so you, and you're not entirely sure like how he's going to actually end it when it when he has to. Come exactly. To so in this Watchmen, which is set uh, years after the events of the comic, picks up sort of the modern day where uh, Dr. Manhattan is in self-imposed exile on Mars in his wake, um, the people are united. Um, the technology has advanced to a point where, you know, holograms and electric cars are pretty ubiquitous. The fallout is that Rorschach, if you remember from the film and the, the comic, uh, writes this diary basically exposing uh, Ozymandias and Dr. Manhattan of, of this, like, incredible conspiracy theory theory. Um, that ended the Cold War and Nixon. It's sort of an alternative history show. And in the world we live in, cops now wear masks. People who have been victims of racism by the U.S. government or white people have been given restitution by President Robert Redford, the actor, um, who had ruled for quite some time. And because of these, um, I guess, compensation packages that have been given to uh, minorities that have been victims of racism. There's a lot of backlash from uh, white people and this new sort of Ku Klux Klan forms called the Seventh Cavalry. Um, and so it's it, it, again, um, even though the world has uh, averted nuclear disaster, there are clearly still a lot of divisions between in society along racial lines and social economic lines. Right. Right. So did the are the Seventh Cavalry the guys uh, that I've seen in some of the marketing who have kind of imitation Rorschach masks on? Yes. Yes. Okay. They've taken Rorschach's kind of like because in the comic and I, I think in the movie to an extent, Rorschach is seen as like he's an antihero, but he's got beliefs or, or he's got an ideology that's kind of like borderline fascist. Yes, very so much. It's, so it's not hard to see how a group who kind of took up his memory um, would kind of go down a Ku Klux Klan kind of uh, route. Right. Um, the point of Rorschach is that he's really the psychopath who who lives in very much a world of black and white. Um, but he may not always be right on certain issues. Um, there are certain issues that will always be some sort of shade of gray, but he doesn't see it that way. And so his f follower sort of put on these makeshift Rorschach masks, just basically white masks with ink blots on them. Right. And they basically become sort of a proxy for white supremacy, um, suicide bombings and whatnot. And what's interesting is that the show is set in Oklahoma and it highlights this um, real life event called the Oklahoma race riots back in the 1920s when a really affluent neighborhood black neighborhood was attacked by a bunch of racists and firebombed and 
and ransacked and, and a bunch of people died and it was horrible. And for a long time, um, the people in Oklahoma and American history have kind of glossed this over. But in this show, Lindelof really like highlights this specific event and and the fallout from it. It's really timely in the sense that we're dealing with a lot of same stuff about police brutality, um, injustices uh, in the legal system, injustices along racial and social economic lines. I don't get the sense that it's making a thesis or a more point either way. I think we're too early in the series for that because uh, the series, like the movie, is about this vast conspiracy that involves really high level uh, ranking people, high ranking government people, and a bunch of superheroes or vigilantes whose motivations are never quite clear. In this show, Regina King plays Angela Abar called Sister Knight, and she's a police detective who wears uh, all black leather jacket and fights crime. And uh, she's helped by two or three other vigilantes. And the story really begins when the chief of police, who's played by Don Johnson of Miami Vice fame, is found lynched and hung from a tree. And so it sets off all these mm. who, who, by the way, Angela Abar's character sees as like a father figure. And it sets off the series of events about how maybe um, Don Johnson is not the the man right. who he claims to be. It, it ties into the, the movie with man, uh, certain references to, to the events of the show, but for sure, Laurie Jupiter is in it, now known as Laurie Blake, uh, who takes on the comedian's last name, and Dr. Manhattan is all is still around, but also Ozymandias, Adrian Veidt, who is played by um, Jeremy Irons in probably like the most like worst-kept secret of the show. Yeah, well, I could almost tell that Jeremy Irons was playing Ozymandias just from the like brief uh, glimpse of him we get in one of the trailers. Yeah, exactly. And his story is very interesting. Um, he's also another character whose status is kind of unknown because he's sort of isolated from the rest of society and we're left to make assumptions about what happened to him since the events of the, the comic. But again, he's this very smart, really quirky, very odd person. Um... It's definitely not as violent as Zack Snyder's version, thank God. But there are certain ideas and images that are, I think, very much for uh, catered towards adults and not kids. Right. And is um, uh, is Doctor Manhattan like fully back, or is he kind of teased as as having a, an appearance in in a future episode? He well, he's supposed to show up, but okay. But I know so he far was... he has not, but they do make references to him because Lori, Lori Blake, Lori Jupiter um, becomes sort of a main character starting from episode three or four. Yeah. And at one point she pulls out this like the, the, the references are very obvious because at one point she's she's kind of like feeling lonely and whatnot because she's now an FBI agent with no none of her Minutemen heroes around. Right. And she pulls out this like giant shiny blue dildo. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> As a sort of like a, a not so subtle nod to Dr. Manhattan. Right. And there's this sort of like booth that they've set up where you can transmit messages to Mars. And just if you look at the titles of the, the episodes. So the first one, it's called It's Summer and We're Running Out of Ice. Second one's Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship. These are all like really like riddle within a riddle kind of like play on word titles. Right. So there's always obviously a lot of imagery and a lot of themes that they want to get through. Um, and again, in, uh, following Zack Snyder's lead, actually, there's a lot of um, popular music in these films. I don't know if that was intentionally done to sort of make a connection with Zack Snyder's film, but it's very effective. Mm. It tries to be cool and hip sometimes, but there's so much still shrouded in mystery. I don't know how I feel about it. it there's so little information just coming in drips and pieces that we're still very much very early on in sort of um discovering the plot and the sort of i guess many double allegiances and, and betrayals that we have yet to right unpack do we know if uh, billy crudup is going to return as dr manhattan i don't know we don't know yet i imagine dr manhattan would make an appearance right yeah because it feels like his story is very much tied to adrian Veidt's. yeah yeah, and Adrian Veidt kind of has his own little story that's going on, and in, inevitably he's gonna meet up with Angela Abar at some point. But for the most part, 
the two stories are very much separate from each other. In the last episode, it's almost implied that Adrian Veidt lives in exile on the moon, and somehow he had he's there in either self-imposed exile or at the mercy of some other character. I see that we have not have yet to. Uh, Meet. So is this something that uh, HBO is looking to turn into like a new uh, IP in the in the vein of in, <laughs> okay, in the vein so, of Game of Thrones, like where they want to get multiple seasons out of it, or does this feel like more of a miniseries type of thing? So basically, following the release of the series, Damon Lindelof is kind of like, well, I don't know if I want to do more seasons of the show. It, I kind of had an idea and I ran with it, but I'm not exactly sure where it's going. Which is just like sending like alarm bells ringing. Off of course, head. yeah. Exactly. I mean, I love Lindelof's work in, in Lost. You know, I'll go to my grave, you know, uh, well, to start him, with. But, but, but yeah, I, I agree that he's not, you know, combined with J.J. Abrams, the two of them, you know, working on Lost and then, you know, going their separate ways afterwards, they they do both have problems with kind of like finding the the satisfying conclusion to stuff. Yeah. So I do think there is a lot of room to expand this 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 post uh, comic Watchmen world because I find it fascinating. But in terms of characters, whether or not these characters are central to multiple season arcs or if this is going to be an anthology anthological type show um, I think I'd be open to both that being said we'll have to see if the series finale is going to end on a cliffhanger we really don't know anything yet and I think we'll have a better answer uh, when that time comes and I think the series will end December 15th Uh, it's a a nine episode season okay but there are I think certain problems I have with it though that really make it stop stops me short of like really giving my full like two thumbs up recommendation. I can't help but think that a lot of these like vigilantes in this Watchmen world are real like cheap knockoffs. There's not much creativity or backstory involved in the new crew of vigilantes in this one. I think what part of what made Watchmen so interesting was the interplay between characters within all the, the vigilante groups, like within the Minutemen and, and all those other characters and how like yeah. Hooded Justice had a, had like a feud with a comedian and they're like closet gays and like um, stories about like betrayals. Well, and they're two generations of Minutemen too. Yeah, exactly. And how they're all kind of tied together and how they develop and shape the world that they're in. I, th- I think we're missing quite a bit of that with these characters so far. I will say though that Tim Blake Nelson, who plays this detective uh, slash vigilante known as the Looking Glass, mm-hmm. who wears this sort of reflective mask that is kind of like Rorschach. So he's kind of like a Ro- knockoff Rorschach, but not nearly as crazy. And he's this brilliant detective, and he's he really knocks it out. And then there is also Red Scare, which is just a police detective who wears a red Adidas sport tracksuit. Which I'm just like, really, like, come on, like he looks like he he's, <laughs> looks like he stepped off from the wrong set of kick ass into this show, right? Whereas if you look at Night Owl, Silk, Silk Spectre, Ozymandias, like the comedian, like their looks are so unique and defined. And, and I think a lot of thought has, and about its use and look has been put into it. Whereas for this show, uh, I'm not so sure that the same thought and care were, were uh, used. Yeah, because, I mean, you you think about, like, how the the characters from, say, the movie, you know, they originated on the page. And I would say that, you know, uh, Alan – was it Alan Moore or Frank Miller? Alan Moore. Alan Moore and, uh, uh, and his collaborators on the comic – uh, had to yeah Dave Gibbons Dave Gibbons yeah they had to kind of invent these characters out of whole cloth and kind of like um, in the 80s sort of comment on the existing uh, comic book heroes as we as we knew them you know people like Superman and Batman and everyone and very much reflective of the times around them too right yeah and reflect on the politics of the time and all of that so there was a lot of work that they had to do to kind of uh, mythologize and like world build all of that stuff and then snyder was able to come in and kind of you know basically make a, a moving version of that you know yes. he was he's famously detail oriented when it came to recreating those comic panels so yeah. a lot of a lot of snyder's work was already done for him when it came to just adapting those uh those vigilante characters and you know the, that mythology was kind of set but now they're trying to extend the mythology and you know it's kind of like when i I don't know this for sure, but it reminds me of how 
the Game of Thrones showrunners, when they ran out of uh, George R. R. Martin material, they had to do a lot more work to kind of extend it without being the kind of guys who originated those characters. So, And it falters because of it. Like, there's no supporting background or facts to, to sort of prove why or to motivate their characters into doing what they were written to do. Yeah, and it's, you know, you might say that that happens in comics all the time where, you know, you get weird spinoff comics based on heroes that we know and love. But at the end of the day, the comics always uh, have that kind of core structure to build on. And it's it's fun to see like a communist version of Superman or like mm-hmm. a Gotham by Gaslight, like, you know, Batman mm-hmm. hunts Jack the Ripper in Victorian England kind of spinoff because we we know the Batman character. We know the Superman character so deeply that it can support those kind of spinoffs. Mm-hmm, right. But this is like the, this isn't so much a spinoff as it's trying to like it's trying to continue the through line past a point that was already kind of an ending. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, I know that I know that Dr. Manhattan is currently fighting Superman in one of the comics arcs right now. But really? <laughs> I didn't know that. What arc? How have I not heard about this? I forget if it's if it's uh, action comics or uh... action comics. Action comics is around still, or they bring that back or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so this is an arc called Doomsday Clock, and <laughs> of it's a DC uh, imprint. You know, they're uh, they're having Manhattan fight off pretty much all of the Justice League hmm. right now. Okay, I don't know what like where where it started, but it's it's like a multi issue kind of arc and. Uh, Oh, it's written by Jeff Johns. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like you know, it's not that it's not that uh, Watchmen totally ended with uh, with those characters, and that you know there hasn't been any any other stuff with them since. But yeah, anyway, it it just goes to show that you know ex- extending characters and spinning off characters, it isn't always the easiest thing in the world. Well, this looks very interesting. Yeah, man. Like I, I don't know if they have any like printed like um, if you can buy a um, a hardcover or trade paperback. Uh, or trade paperback version of it yet if it's if it's done. Um, but because uh, I've never gotten into like single issue uh, comics uh, in the way that some fans do, but uh, I prefer to wait until like they're they're all compiled for me. But <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned two things, um, the clock, which is, again, a running theme in the show, because there's this trillionaire woman called Lady True who who is attempting to build this millennium clock whose use that we're still not privy to. Um, in the center of Oklahoma, and it's it's got something to do with Doctor Manhattan and Adrian fight, but we don't know what it is. Yet. Oh, okay. The second is the the comic book um, sort of look it has. So if you remember, there are a lot of comic books where like they'll close they'll do a close up of one thing, like say like a circular object, say like a clock, and then they'll smash cut it into um, another scene, and that and that clock that's a circle becomes like. I don't know, a coffee cup or something that someone picks up or something like that, right? Right. There's a lot of that in the TV show. That's sort of the one of the ways they implied that Adrian Vite is stuck on the moon because he's looking through this like binoculars or this uh, looking glass and he's looking at this round thing and that round round shape ultimately becomes the moon. Um, so there's a lot of that. I don't know if... I'm, I'm pretty sure that's intentional to sort of give you the, the comic book feel of the film but yeah i i do recommend it it's i don't think the production value is on the same level as Zack snyder because i'll give Zack snyder one thing in that his production value and his costumes for his films are always usually pretty top notch oh yeah yeah he tends to work with some pretty pretty great people on that yeah yeah my, my only fear is that damon lindoff has no idea where the show is going and it's starting to feel that way because we're four episodes in uh, of a nine episode show and we're not really getting a lot more clarity on a lot of issues there's actually a lot more things that i feel that we are still going to learn more about um and certain things that may never be answered so all right well classic Lindo. i don't i don't know for sure like whether i'll ever i think i'll wait until this season is done and kind of like figure out whether i want to catch up on it maybe at at that point i uh i i'm a little bit theory of of kind of jumping in on it while it's while it's still going but uh, maybe we'll revisit it when it's uh when the season finale is done and uh and kind of like check in and yeah, see please do. <laughs> see what it's like um can i throw one last plug in there oh yeah what do you got okay showtime has a show called on becoming a god in central florida oh yeah which, okay. which just aired its season finale and i haven't got to it yet but i'm really really close as you walk the path ahead of you 
You're going to learn exactly what you are made of. We're gonna get what we want. You are a demon. Uh, no. I'm a businessman. Um, I can't really spoil anything if I wanted to, but uh, if you have Crave or, or Showtime, I highly recommend it. It's uh, set in the 90s, one of my favorite, favorite periods of all time. If you weren't sure, then you will be convinced by how many um, cassette tapes there are shown in the film. It's like kind of like a running gag that every I feel like every single episode needs a cassette of some kind. Um, but anyway, Kirsten Dunst plays this widow who is kind of roped into this MLM uh, company called FAM. And she, in an attempt to make ends meet, uh, decides to be, be part of this FAM family. But then she realized that there's a lot of nefarious things going on. But so with her with the help of her upline, this really young man named Cody, uh, played by a guy named Theodore Pellerin, who I think is actually quite good. They kind of try to um, throw everything on his head. And I'm about midway through, and it's been really interesting so- show so far. It's a dark comedy set in Florida. So you really get that pastel sort of humid aesthetic that you kind of got from that uh, serial killer show, Dexter. Okay. It kind of has that sort of feel. I don't know what it is, but for some reason, like whenever a show is set in Florida, you kind of know right away whether it's the clothes, the people, or the colors. And this is very much one of those shows where in one shot, you're just like, oh, we're definitely in the South. But it's highly entertaining. I recommend it. I think Kirsten Dunst is an, does an unbelievable job. So if you have it, check it out. But I think that about does it for this episode. Uh, we've got... Lots of new reviews up on kinetoscope.ca, as always, including a new review of The Lighthouse. There'll be a review of The Irishman that will be up uh, by the time this episode goes live, hopefully. And, of course, the November and December are leading uh, into lots of high-profile releases. We're going to be seeing uh, Knives Out and might even get Jason's take on Uncut Gems when that comes out in December. So, until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Please be sure to check out our site, www.kinetoscope.ca. Find us on Twitter, at kinetoscope.ca, or our personal accounts, at jrobertsnow and at jasonchen16. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.